So welcome to a special recording of Bottle Rail Radio. I am here with the Professor and John Garrity. Wonderful day. I've had the privilege of seeing Brooklyn firsthand. My understanding, John Garrity, is this is your first opportunity to see Brooklyn as well. Yes. I've never been where Brooklyn is at the same time. Right. So a, a day of firsts here. Um, some background to this. We met a gentleman called Max Burnett this morning. Max is, I think, the current president of the local Hornby Society, which covers both Hornby O and Hornby Double O. Very nice gentleman, very hospitable. We spend the morning answering questions associated with my grandfather's layout, in particular why certain <laughs> locomotives, why certain rolling stock had strange couplers, and a history associated with the effect of the Second World War on children's toys. <laughs> uh, very interesting morning. Uh, Prof, you had some Hornby in your childhood as well, didn't you? Yes, yes. Uh, through our family, uh, there is an heirloom of a Hornby clockwork uh, train set, an oval of tin plate track, uh, clockwork, wind-up, uh, four-wheel, uh, shunt-up, switching loco, um, and a three-car passenger train. Mm. And uh, that came down through my mother's side of the family, and uh, both my brother and I spent um, uh, some hours uh, playing with that and um, uh, fixing clockwork springs, as they would occasionally <laughs> fire. Um, but no, tremendous fun. And um, seeing Max there this morning and um, seeing his knowledge yeah. on, the, um, oh, yes. on the range of Hornby from... Uh, original, uh, original, uh, Hornby almost, uh, push along train through clockwork into Hornby three rail, uh, electrified AC. Yes. Where the loco could never back up because it was AC. There was no <laughs> reversing. And then also how that, what I found really interesting was how that, um, evolved into, particularly into Australia, uh, Ferris and what was the other one? Uh, Robilt. Yes. Robilt. Robilt are doing what was very similar to um, Three Rail Hornby out of Melbourne, um, post-Second World War thereabouts, and um, Ferris doing the same thing for um, Sydney yes. and New South Wales Railways. Uh, Ferris doing the the um, the Red Rattler uh, electric sets uh, that famously uh, had photos and video running over the Harbour Bridge. Um, the road-built stuff from Melbourne, I was intrigued that there was some most definitely Victorian... Uh, three-axle boxcar, uh, sorry, three-axle um, uh, brake vans. <laughs> um, I think I saw a two-axle B wagon Certainly. there. Um, and there were a couple of what were in model terms um, four-wheel steam locos and tenders but had all of the fairings to look like an S-class yeah, no, certainly. So it was. Uh, uh, it, it gives you that kind of history of model making, uh, particularly commercial model making, where, and we're talking what between the between the wars, between World War One, World War Two. The Robilt stuff of my grandfather's collection, probably about a third of it was Robilt. Yep. And quality wise, distinctly more rough and ready. Mm. Uh, and in terms of running similarly. In terms of couplers, completely different than again. But yeah, just amazing fellow, Max. Lots of information. Certainly. Filled in a lot of gaps for me and, and a, a few for you as well. Vast collection spanning the eras associated with Hornby. Yeah. A little yep. bit of, uh, <laughs> the dreaded Lionel hidden away behind the chair. Yeah, we, but we won't, we won't mention the Lionel. It's kept on the bottom shelf. Behind the stools and a couple of the bags and things where it's generally not seen. Yes. 
But uh, we then went to a bowling club and had a very nice fish yes. and chip meal, which is yes. going to follow a theme maybe later this evening as well. Um, and yeah, and, and parted ways with Max, and then went to a hobby store called... Train Trader. Train Trader. I wasn't really sure, because they had a website, how big the store was. Mm. And its size caught me initially, and then I realised that the space was very heavily well utilised. They had done... Mm. Um, what they call them? Compactors. Compactors. Yeah, yeah. That they had a number of stuff in. You actually explored the compactors. I had a bit. I had a bit of a look through there. Um, there's a couple of there's a couple of projects on the slow simmer at the moment, and I thought it might have been an opportunity to find something relevant. So yeah, I managed to pick up a couple of things. So that was good. But the compactors, if anyone's ever set up an industrial office, um, compactors are some of the best ways to get ma- uh, most storage space in least amount of um, functional space. Of course, the challenge is when you go to uh, close a compactor to get into the next one and realise someone's in there looking at Hornby uh, yeah. uh, structures and uh, <laughs> they don't matter. Yeah, that was that was a little <laughs> bit of an issue. So there was a little bit of logistics, but Train Trader has been in the in the area where they are up at Pimble for quite a number of years. I know that what it would be over twelve months ago they moved in the same block of shops from a larger shop into their current slightly smaller shop and. Strangely enough, when we were in there today, one of the uh, one of the staffers was talking to another another um, uh, uh, customer in there, and made reference that when they moved, they threw out three skips of stuff, so they shrunk that much, mm-hmm. and so they're making the best use they can of their floor space. It's not cramped, but it's not exactly uh, room to hold a barn dance either. Yes, and I mean the thing that impressed me was a vast quantity of secondhand stock. Hmm which I thought a lot of it wasn't particularly glamorous. They had it in a wide variety of assorted cardboard boxes at the very back. But in terms of the locomotives that they had in, in the glass that were clearly well-loved second-hand, yeah, they were relatively reasonably priced. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were maybe slightly higher on some things, but basically, on average, wasn't too bad. Should pay. Wasn't too bad. Uh, and the staff were very helpful and very friendly, which is always good. They generally are. Yeah. The, the train trader guys, um, my experience with them has always been positive. Um... Uh, always been able and able to have a chat, able to help me out, try and find some things or direct me to stuff. So yeah, as far as hobby shops in Sydney go, particularly in the in the northern area of Sydney, yeah, it's always been a good place to be. And you picked up some stuff. I did. What I did. project is that for? A couple of months ago, a advanced release advisory came out from um, from one of the manufacturers of a loco that I'm. A huge fan of. I have too many of them in one particular scale at the moment, and these ones were in a different scale. And unfortunately, they grabbed me by the lapels and they wouldn't let me go. <laughs> so two of those are on their way. <laughs> and in uh, the scale that they're coming in is a scale that I haven't really worked in before. I've, I've had a little bit of a double. So for the folks listening in at home, this is N. N. Right. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, I, I had a little bit of a had a little bit of a double within. Oh, we would say decades ago, decades, mm. decades, decades ago, for various reasons. Uh, I'd used N as a donor mech uh, for HON30. Certainly, yeah. Um, since then, and that's been my my most use of it. But anyway, these locos are on their way, and so I figure that I need to uh, bone up a bit. I need to get comfy with it. I need to need to uh, get prepped for what's mm-hmm. coming. Um, and if that means that there happens to be an ingle nook pop out in N, well then so be it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So, we then came 
what do you call a shake closer? What do, what do you call this this space? Home. Home. <laughs> we then came, some may refer to it as the professor's lair. We arrived here, and look, I was I was thoroughly impressed with the minimalism. I assumed that I would be coming to an environment where, and there is one room in the house which you know where stuff is stacked. But even that is organised and considered. Relatively. <laughs> certainly the area in which you have your layouts on display, and you did you put up these up especially for my visit, or are they typically stored here? Um, they are typically stored here. They're not typically stored in what we'd consider to be the dining room. Um, oh, okay, so this is especially for my visit. Uh, the, the, okay. Having them out and functional, Tom, we couldn't do it without. Thank you. you know, we could have you. you without the case. Thank you. Um, but uh, there is a section in the in the workroom in the workshop. Um, there is a wall with a window, um, and that window, my my ever loving and caring and considerate and and long suffering wife, uh, we we have a kind of agreement that as long as sunlight can come through the window, then that's okay. Which means there's a lot of cube that's, space. That's, that's which means there's a lot of cube space below the window, <laughs> which is storage space. <laughs> um, typically, Brooklyn is stored off-site. Uh, Brooklyn's support structure goes under that window. The cubic area under Brooklyn's support uh, is stashed with various things. And when you say off-site, what, what do you mean specifically? I mean literally not here. Okay. Do you have a storage <laughs> unit, or is there another no, place? There is a there is another another house uh, that is uh, owned by a family member. Oh yes, you mentioned that. Yeah. That um that I currently we currently have some uh, rooms of the house spread out, and we have some equipment in various places. Okay. Um. So no, Brooklyn stored off site. Chicago Fork is that'll be the HO version is stored here on site, but not in the um not in the primary area of the house. It's it's in the warehouse. <laughs> Bindle Mine is one of the um, layouts which is stored in the cube space under Brooklyn's support structure. Mm-hmm. Um, Brooklyn signage uh, is in the warehouse, as is... I'm sorry, the one piece of Brooklyn that I couldn't get out, I had talked with my, my dear wife as to uh, whether I was going to get it out for you and we were not sure if everything else being equal it would fit. Uh one of the mandatory pieces of equipment for any show layout is a crowd barrier. Mm. And in the spirit of um, Brooklyn and New York, uh, we do actually have a uh, a New York uh, police blue crowd barrier. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have that out mm-hmm. <laughs> on display for you, but it's in the warehouse at the moment mm-hmm. as well. So um, Something to do with running out of floor space. <laughs> but, I mean, seeing Brooklyn with this level of intimacy... Sticking your head inside really lends itself. I mean, it's a layout that almost requires you to reach into it it's and look in. It's designed to do that. Yeah. If, you're, if you're standing two feet back trying to look at this thing, you are missing a significant amount of the presentation. Certainly. And during shows, that's exactly how we... So where does the crowd barrier actually go? The Just crowd, at the front? crowd barrier stands at the front, maybe six inches off the leading edge. There is a one foot deep, uh, what in the lighting and photography circles uh, someone would consider, uh, call it a barn door. Mm-hmm. It's basically a light shield, mm-hmm. so it stops amb- a degree of ambient light from various angles uh, coming from the outside world and shining on what is meant to be three in the morning scene, a, yeah. a pitch dark scene. Uh, so a combination of the crowd barrier plus the uh, barn door that helps guide people into the layout. It kind of focuses them in towards the middle and then yeah. drags them in. Yeah. Um, 
Unlike previous layouts that I've done, the crowd barrier is generally not two foot off and the <laughs> front is an operator aisle, <laughs> but that's because largely Brooklyn is so, so small and it is so intimate in its presentation mm. that if the operator was standing in front of the scene and delivering, they'd be blocking a good quarter to yeah, a third yeah, of the exactly. scene. And it wouldn't allow the viewer to actually do the visual participation associated with entering the scene. and you To know. get the sensory effect yeah, of the yeah, whole thing. That, yeah. that, would, that would avoid that. So, I mean, it can be used as a crowd barrier in the true you stand there and the lad is here and you look from over there kind mm-hmm. of sense. It can be used that way. Generally, Brooklyn is is yeah displayed in a more intimate setting, so the crab area is there for um, uh, New York flavour, bit of New York feel. <laughs> but yeah, it gets pulled back in, and with an operator on either corner, should anyone get um, uh, fingers poking at things that they shouldn't do, it's fractions of a second to uh, stop the scale of the quake. Yes, yeah, that's not yeah. hard. But they're not cuffed and thrown to the ground. No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Optional. <laughs> so another thing that I like about it is, and we've talked about this pretty ad nauseum on the show, but to actually experience the use of sound and light, just very interesting. And we were talking a little bit before we started the recorder associated with how you found the kind of perfect level for the rave mm. to not be annoying to, you know, other folks on either side of the layout, okay. but to actually kind of lure people in with, with you know, certain things. Can you talk a little bit about that philosophy? Um, well, there's many people who uh, we have onboard sound now. There are people who are looking at scale sound and layout <laughs> sound, and I delineate between those two. Um, let's let's say onboard sound and layout sound. So there's layout-born sound, maybe a CD player, an MP3 player, and a pair of speakers, versus onboard sound, decoders, and onboard <laughs> speakers, this kind of deal. Sound, a lot of the time, doesn't get a huge response. There's not a lot of people that are keen, and the vast majority of the reason why, quite simply, is because it's turned up too loud. Mm-hmm. It is simply out of scale. Yeah. John um, Garrity is nodding his head feverishly, <laughs> he's almost in, comically. He's in furious agreement. Yeah. Um, uh, one, one example that I recently gave to a group of modelers was I set a plank in front of them uh, that, unbeknownst to them, had a pair of speakers mounted on it, and I put a HO scale dog on the plank and said, here's a one by four foot, the beginnings of a model layout scene, here's a HO scale dog. I then played a near full, full volume, full scale volume sound of a German shepherd barking. And understandably, they all jumped back. They didn't expect the plank to bark at them. Mm-hmm. But I had to make the point, does anybody believe that that level of sound is coming out of that HO dog? And no one in the room believed it and everybody understood what I was saying. Yeah. So, in this instance, we have a HO uh, corner of 41st and 2nd in Brooklyn, in New York. Um, it's 3 in the morning, it's raining, the people who are awake are either awake because they have to be or because they don't want to be, um, the insomniacs are out in force, there's an abandoned warehouse, what did we expect was going to happen 3 in the morning, there's a rave party. Now, a HO scale rave party does not need to be loud. Uh, so, quite simply, let's not do that. Let's, we, we have sound, we can optimise sound so that at a low level, it still sounds evenly balanced in terms of frequencies. We can mm. tweak to the human ear. With strategic uh, deployment of a sub uh, subwoofer speaker below the frame, we can effectively couple the doof-doof to the person's chest so they feel the doof in their chest 
and they get the feeling that they would standing near a real full-size rave party in a warehouse, they get more feel than they do actual audio. And that's important, because if you can get that unconscious, I'm getting thumped in the chest, there must be doof happening. But it's not so loud that you can stand two two, uh, steps back and the thing fades into the ambient noise level of the room that you're standing in. You've hit scale sound. Mm -hmm. You've hit a scale sound as opposed to layout sound. Mm-hmm. The sound is both frequency-wise and raw volume, decibel level-wise. It's at an appropriate level for the scale of the visuals that the human is receiving. If the audible scale and the visual scale information match, mm-hmm. the brain can kind of be fooled into saying, yes, these two go together. The whole presentation works. Visual and audio input, the sensory input, at the same time, all together. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. You do the HO dog experiment that we did, little dog, dirty great big sound, you see the dog, you hear a dog bark, but no one in this world is going to believe that that sound came from that dog. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it is very much like visual modelling. We do our uh, visual research, we look at scale plans, we get scale material, we get um, strip, wood, strip, uh, 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 strip wood, styrene, brass. Uh, we cut and shape and form this stuff together and we form it in scale relative to whatever the model is that we're building. Sonic modelling, scale modelling, is no greatly different. Mm. Work out what it is, what the, what the visual noisemaker is, work out what sounds it would make. Finding um, the equivalent of strip wood and raw materials is almost devastatingly easy now. www.freesound.org, mm. um, searchable sound effects library, and it's free. Go mad. Once you can turn that down to a level where it starts making sense in scale, tweak the frequencies maybe a little bit to work, and deploy the speaker system in the scene so that it's sympathetic to the visual model, you can end up in a situation... Brooklyn is a, is a perfect example of this. A rave party is orally a large, loud event. Right? It orally... The sound is a huge sound. Mm. It's really hard to escape doof-doof. Mm-hmm. Um... But Brooklyn delivers it in such a way that it never exceeds 60 dB SPL. And for reference, the conversation we're having now, we're pushing 70, mm-hmm. 70 dB yeah, SPL or more. Yeah. So when your layout sound system is pushing 60 dB SPL and the ambient noise level in an exhibition show floor is up around the 80 to 85 dB Certainly. SPL, the ambient noise swamps it unless the person sticks their head up against the layout, at which point... The closest noisemaker to their ears are the speakers in the layout module. Yeah. It's just like putting on a dirty, great big open-air set of headphones. Yeah. It directly couples the scale sound to their ears, and they may not be conscious of it while just the low-level trucks and traffic and things of the city are going on, but when the federal signal siren off the cop car goes off, it draws their attention. It's a call-out sound. It's a woo-woo, and it, wait, there's something in there. Suddenly there is focus in. Just like your eyes focus on a dark scene and you focus on a light that turns on, your ears focus on the call-out sound, on the detail that just popped in. And once your ears are focused in on the scene, suddenly you start hearing the dog barking over at the far left, hmm. the two cats fighting on the industrial chain-link fence right in front of you. Mm-hmm. You start hearing the MC pumping up the crowd mm-hmm. and then you get the doof 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 mm-hmm. kick in and when the laser lighting effect of Brooklyn kicks in you know you have absolutely no doubt in your mind you're looking at a scale HO rave party mm-hmm. the locomotives on yes. the layout I was surprised that you were able to fit three locomotives and what 
maybe two cars of locomotive, basically, maybe plus one. The the average the average yeah. train length on Brooklyn is two to three cars, yeah. depending on where it is. Yep. They're all neatly hidden. Yep. The one that's active kind of comes out. You occasionally have one as a kind of show locomotive, which isn't doing anything. Depending on where we are. Yep. How did you pick the three locomotives? Um, well, the the layout itself is a is a fairly sincere model of um, the corner of Forty First and Second on New York Cross Harbour Railroad. New York Cross Harbour uh, had, uh, particularly in the late nineties, leading up to two th- early two thousands, had a small fleet of uh, Alco S series <laughs> switches and a couple of NW two EMDs, which were Southern Railroad. In doing the research on the layout, I knew that I wanted to hit the late nineties, early two thousands. <laughs> Um, shortly after, if memory serves, it was around 2000, they sold off some of the locos. And I wasn't real keen on mm-hmm. that idea. I wanted the Alcos, I wanted mm-hmm. the NWs. But if I moved too far early, if I got into the early, um, early 90s, some of those locos were only just coming on roster. Yeah, certainly. So that kind of narrowed down the time frame. Yeah. Uh, once we worked that out, there are a number of roster, um, sites online. And I was able to get down to number 11, the black um, ex-Messina terminal, uh, Alco S4. Uh, number 25, if memory serves, the um, Alco S2, one of the pair of S2s. I had number 59, which was one of the um, Southern Railroad, um, ex-Southern Railroad NW2s. Um, in looking at Brooklyn... Cato do a fantastic NW2 in HO, yeah. and a little bit of kit bashing out of that and a repaint job uh, got it to number 59 quite quickly. It was really amusing to find out that number 59 on your Cross Harbour's roster uh, had full-length handrails. NW2s generally did not. They only had a little short handrail right at the uh, end, yeah. and the, um, the only handrail along the hood was on the hood itself. Yeah. So I kept looking at this model of the Cato, and I kept looking at the prototype photos I had, and I thought, how am I going to do these long, long side handrails? I've got to work out a way to do this. And I thought, well, instead of trying to reform all the front handrails, I can just get a long handrail and glue it onto the provided model silicon <laughs> front end little handrails, and it'll work. Lo and behold, I went back and I had a look at some of my key photos... That's exactly what the prototype had done, only they'd welded it instead of using super glue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was fine. I was half keen on having uh, New York Cross Harbour bought X Union Pacific uh, SW 1500 1133 um, shortly in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a fan of SW 1500s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was half keen to do that, but that was one of the locos that if I'd gone too far forward... I started losing the Alcos, mm-hmm. so I wasn't real keen on going there, and it was, it's always been a heart of hearts kind of problem. Um, the Alcos themselves, the uh, the S2 and the S4, um, sorry, S1 and S4, my apologies, uh, Atlas have done those. Certainly. And back when Brooklyn was being built, um, Atlas was was the only game in town, pretty much, for mm-hmm. Alco switches. Mm-hmm. Since then, Barkman have come out and done Certainly, them. There's yes. been another couple... Um, and so there are a number of different options. But, again, with some tweaking of those, just some minor kit bashing, some minor painting, you get some quite credible uh, results in terms of rep- replicating the uh, New York Cross Harbour locos. Mm. Uh, You're not really answering my question, though, Prof. Sorry. I mean, you, you've, you've, covered, <laughs> you've covered the locos that are there. Yeah. But why did you go with three? I mean, you could get away with one here, 
but you clearly had a passion where you wanted to get all three. Well, there's, there was partially a passion to get all three. There was partially selecting the Loco roster. In terms of show work, specifically relating to building the layout for show work, which it was built... I'm going to say it was even evenly built in terms of drive between doing exhibitions mm-hmm. and operating at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually doing operating sessions, New York Cross Harbour operating mm. sessions. There were equal parts of, of those disparate aims, and they can be quite separate, mm-hmm. during the build and design process. However, standing rule for an exhibition is the more locos, the better, mm-hmm. because if you fail, if any of the locos <laughs> fail, you've got to you're dead in the water. Yes. You also have the problem where Brooklyn is a very specific theme. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike a lot of layouts on the exhibition, on the Australian exhibition scene, Brooklyn takes its theme quite seriously. There's a lot of background research going on. There's a lot of headspace into it. A lot of the scenes are actually modelled directly from prototype photos, which I carry with the layout when I go to shows. Mm -hmm. So if I was to have all of the New York Cross Harbour logos fail and I had to grab a loco from somewhere just to keep the show rolling, yeah, mechanically to keep the show rolling, but it would significantly impact the presentation of the story of the layout. Right, there is a theme, there's a story, there's a whole construct around it, and so we need to keep on that. So having the three uh, locos there, being able to be parked in their respective positions with appropriate consists, and then be able to swap over between consists roughly once an hour, which keeps the Mm-hmm. Keeps the people amused. They don't kind of roll back in three hours' time and go, yeah, it's the same train that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, it also gives you that degree of backup. It Certainly. gives you that degree of confidence that you can say, I will have something appropriate running at any moment without issue. You just don't hesitate. It's backups on backups on backups. Certainly. And, and that will last multiple days, eight hours a day plus. Without without With, dying. Without dying. <laughs> without dying. Um, having ultra... Uh, I don't... I'm not going to say that doing exhibitions is not the place to take your ultra-fragile, ultra-scratch-built locos, Mm -hmm. but if you're going to do the kind of hardcore, cannot-afford-to-fail, first-time-every-time-never-stop situation, you've got to have things which are optimised mechanically, electrically, and visually, presentation-wise, within an inch of their life, and that Mm -hmm. goes for everything. I think we've mentioned on, on the podcast before a kind of headspace for prepping mm-hmm. for an exhibition where it's a case of uh, check everything like mm-hmm. every spike check e- every loco every coupling <laughs> every bear every buggy every bearing, every truck check everything because at nine o'clock when the doors open and the punters come into the hall you've got to be able to have your hand on your heart confidence that the layout is going to be reliable mm. indeed there's some people and I think John you've, you've had this situation there are some people in the show scene who work on the basis, I've got to be able to confidently turn my back on the layout and walk away from it for half an hour and come back and know that it is still running exactly as I left it. Yes. If they can't do that, it's not ready for show work mm. because anything less than that is not going to be enjoyable to display and present. It's not going to give you the time that you can say the layout's running Someone's come to me from the crowd and wants to talk about it. I, I'm paranoid about the layout. I can't spare even 30 seconds mm-hmm. to answer your question because the layout might fall apart mm-hmm. without me. If you're that stressed out at an exhibition, don't be at the exhibition. Mm. This is mm. not the place for you if this mm. is the case. So, yeah, the optimising the locos and having a nice selection of three robust, known mechanically solid locos 
it's more of a pre- it's more of a, a stagecraft Certainly. exhibition thing than it is selecting the locos specifically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, having them up their sleeve is a um, always a good idea. And a point that you made, which I think we've talked about historically associated with the difference between British shows and American shows, which I didn't realise was the case in Australia, but you let me know, is you're actually paid to attend the show with the lab, right? As a general take, yes. Yeah. It's not something that you go out and say, or I, I can't say that I... What am I trying to say? I don't submit a request to an exhibition manager saying, pay me X amount of dollars and I will bring my name layout to your show. Mm-hmm. It's more a case of, I've built an exhibition layout. I would like to go and present. Here's my available layout. Would you like to have me at your, at your exhibition? Mm-hmm. They say, yes, we do whatever we do. In thanks for appearing, there is usually some form of payment there, but it's but not. You, it's it's you do it for the presenting and the exhibition, <laughs> and yeah. you get paid in the process. You do not, and there are a number of people who have tried this. You do not go onto the exhibition scene on the basis of I'm going to do this as a job to make money. <laughs> there have been pro exhibition layouts, professional exhibition layouts who their whole basis was touring around Australia with their layout, mm-hmm. living on the proceeds of doing exhibitions. One, don't do that. Two, <laughs> the dollars that you get will not cover your costs. And three, and this is the one that can particularly kill a lot, is that realistically the average exhibition layout has a shelf life of about three years if you hit just about every exhibition you can do. After about three years, you've hit saturation. Everybody's seen you. Everybody mm-hmm. knows what you're about. There's nothing new. There's nothing left. You've got two ways to do it. You can either, or three ways to do it. You can either dump that layout and do something else. You can limit the number of shows you attend, mm-hmm. or you can deliberately engineer into the layout um, gradual evolution. So, so between each show, you change or modify something. But even so, you're still fighting against time, and you're fighting against the one thing that I have to say is a, is a personal bugbear of mine. I really struggle when someone rocks up to a layout and says, yep, saw that two weeks ago, nothing to see here, and turns and walks away. Nothing sadder than that. Mm. Part of that is is also the perception of the looker. People have got to want to actively look. Uh, There are a lot of people who will turn up, oh, it's... A Union Pacific, whatever. 30-second glance, if you move on. 30-second glance, I'm not interested in UP, move along. Or, oh. or even or even worse, 30-second glance, I've seen everything this layout's got to give me, move, move on. on. They haven't looked at a darn thing. <laughs> what they've done is, oh, it's got that breed of locomotive on it, it's that type of train, no, I'm not really interested, I'm not going to look any further. Um... Let's go try and have a look at something else. Yeah. Um, quite often, there was an expression some time back, the standard New South Wales exhibition layout. Mm. Um, basically, a double-track main line opposing directions with a... Um, wooden overpass. Wooden overpass <laughs> as, a, as a block on one seam and a tunnel <laughs> yes. block at the other. Disappears over the back, to the back part of the oval where there's a ladder of, of tracks with trains waiting to come out. Um, the scenery at the front would vary depending on where in the particular state, and I'll use New South Wales here because we are in New South Wales, um, 
where in New South Wales it was. Like, okay, if you're out on the Western Plains, yes, it's flat. We've got a, a range of hills behind Sydney. Okay, so yes, there's some sandstone cliffs and some cuttings. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the basic concept is a, a scenic front and an oval with ladder tracks over the back. And yes, it works because it gives you the redundancy. You can run a different train out every two laps. Something hesitates. Something you can dump hesitates, that train, get another one. Dump the train out, get another one. Yeah. But it, it becomes, it does become a racetrack and it does unfortunately encourage someone to stand there, watch one train go past. I've seen it. I've done it. One of the benefits of Brooklyn and one of the things that it kind of busts a little bit, one of the myths, is that it's impossible to have a show layout that is anything other than a circuit. Because anything that you've got to start and stop, anything that's point to point, well, it either means that someone's sitting there with a throttle flicking the reversing switch every so often, uh, or every so often, if they forget to do it, the train action stops. Oh my god! That's the end of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, train movement equals show. That's <laughs> the perception. No train movement, no show. <laughs> no of interest. Um, so as a result, a back and forth becomes arguably, hold on, we can't do this. Because too much of a risk of the show stopping. <laughs> um, very easily overcome, as we know. We've talked about this on the show previously, mm-hmm. whether you're running analog or now, uh, DCC. Very easily to overcome. You can have uh, a, a layout which quite easily uh, runs quite happily, backwards and forwards, without direct user intervention. Mm-hmm. With a little bit of strategic, um, strategic work on um, uh, turnout routing. Uh, in your seeing the layout operate here today, you haven't seen me flick a single block toggle or block switch or, you know, there hasn't been anything electrical that you've seen me change to change a loco. All I've done is thrown turnouts, and yet I've got up to three locos under absolute stop-on-a-point control mm-hmm. on a two-by-four-foot layout. Mm-hmm. So my ability to switch between locos is not I have to go round to the back behind a layout and faff around with a fiddle yard mm-hmm. or, you know, faff around with a double-ended staging yard or mm-hmm. anything like this, I can operate entirely from the front and keep people amused for hours. Certainly, certainly. Mm-hmm. So how you present, and uh, again, it speaks to every element from design through build to final presentation, optimising everything mm-hmm. for that one moment when someone is standing in front of the layout, that... They have that focus for those few moments, and if you can grab their attention at that point and hold them there, then immediately your orders of magnitude above almost any other layout presentation. In terms of cleaning layout, in terms of cleaning Brooklyn, mm. as, as noted, even coming to it and then coming to it seeing it, the magnetic nature of when- high gloss <laughs> <laughs> enamel and dust yes. is quite extreme. Wet cloth, what kind of techniques are you going to use for the cleaning? Um, well, Brooklyn's wet look is uh, basically a massive spray bomb of um, gloss mm-hmm. uh, spray paint. I, I built the layout, I built it all weathered dark, but it was matte, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of Certainly. texture on everything, yeah. and I was standing in front of it. It was, almost, it was one of the near-to-last operations on the layout, and I had two spray cans of gloss one in each hand, and I'm standing in front of the layout, and I was about to spray bomb everything, and I just, I had that moment when you had to hesitate and think, 
this is like, there's no coming back from this. I'm mm-hmm. not really sure this is going to work. <laughs> but because it's effectively sealed, the whole thing, top to bottom, is sealed gloss. Mm-hmm. It means that as I've done in the last um, little while, I've literally poured water on it. Mm-hmm. I've poured isopropyl alcohol on it. Mm-hmm. I've scrubbed that off using um, stiff bristled brushes in some of the details. I've used a um, new washing up uh, wash washer. Um, sponge, mm-hmm. uh, not the not the uh, scourer pad side, so, definitely yeah. the wash side. Um, but the point being is, I've been able to flood it. I've been able to um, uh, dissolve and dislodge a lot of the dust mm-hmm. uh, off it. I've been able to scrub that out of the way in details. It's it's felt very much like detailing a car. Mm-hmm. I've stopped short of getting out the cotton buds mm-hmm. and going down the you know scale uh, gutters of the streets, this mm-hmm. kind of thing. But if I was really had to go there, then certainly I could. Um, interestingly, flooding it with isopropyl uh, hasn't affected the rails of the graphite at all. Yeah, I was wondering about that. It's yeah. worked. It's, well, we know that isopropyl will um, quite happily coexist with um, sealed paper, foam core, mm-hmm. uh, plastics, uh, acrylic paints, enamel paints. Uh, isopropyl is a very, very, very forgiving thing. Certainly. So, I mean, doing that over what is already a fully sealed scene... Not a big problem at all. Mm. I could probably go with with another dose. I have to say, the layout's been in storage and hasn't been touched for almost two years. Mm. Now, what is particularly amusing is being a full proscenium module, being a full cube, I have to say to you that the scene is a lot less dusty than what the backside of the module is as it was exposed to air. Um, I witnessed that you, today. You've, yeah. seen, you've seen around the back end of it, and yeah. I, I think I did see a couple of fingerprints getting marked <laughs> in the dust. Um, yes, I just wasn't sure if it was fungal or if it was dust. That was the, <laughs> as the case may be. Yeah. Um, but the point being that uh, you can track the dust build-up on the top of the module by looking at the top of the roof, the exposed um, backside of the module. Mm-hmm. And when you compare that to the amount of dust that has actually fallen on the on the layout, even before it was dusted... It's an order of magnitude less dust on the scene, Certainly. but it's still enough that the gloss look is, I have to be honest, it's not as absolutely glossy as it was on its debut show. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there will need to be some, potentially some automotive, uh, high-class car detailing level de-dusting go on. Mm-hmm. There may well be, if I can get it clean enough to a state that I'm happy with, there may need to be another spray bombing session. Yeah, I was wondering about that, if that was the... Uh like the best way of basically treating some of the... It might it yeah. might be the best way to do it. Um, we just need to be a little bit careful. A lot of the time, the enamel gloss, um, and I mean, I, I found this already when I was testing it back with the initial application. I did try on some link, uh, lumps of foam core, and I did kind of one pass, then a one pass and back again. And I think I tried another one with three passes, four passes. I worked out how many passes, how many layers I mm-hmm. needed, how many passes over it I needed to do. And I found that it was very touch and go. You didn't actually need a whole lot before you went from scale wet look to it actually caking up and drying and it becoming quite a thick film mm-hmm. on the on the surface. And I mean look when you're looking at one of the one of the benefits of where we where we're actually here at, at Casa Kleisler Shares Kleisler, as the case may be. Um, we do have roads on two sides of the of the building, and we do get some quite Brooklyn esque um, bounces of streetlights and things off the tarmac when it's raining mm-hmm. here. And you become very conscious that the tarmac appears darker, 
but you're also conscious that you don't actually see water layer. Mm. And that was the kind of look that we were looking for. We were looking for the the drizzle, drizzly kind of rain slicked but not rain falling on surface. Mm -hmm. So if you go with too many layers of this gloss and it starts caking up, it looks like there's hardened syrup Mm -hmm. on the surface. Not good. Not what you're looking for. So, returning to the touring aspect of this layer, yep. in, in the driveover, we had some discussion associated with a conversation that you had with your wife, yep. associated with the time for Brooklyn and the fact that it still needs to attend a few shows. It still hasn't done everything here. But looking at it, as someone who's been to a few US shows and mm, impressed with some, but not impressed with all, I think this layout would tour very well in the US. In fact, I think it would tour pretty well anywhere, but it would be... An interesting homage to have a tour of the US. I think I think it would be interesting. Um, uh, one of the and John was actually one of the people. I, I I believe that he will remember these conversations a couple of weeks before Brooklyn's debut show. I rang up John, not quite in tears, but I was really edgy, and I had to say, "I'm paranoid about this thing. I don't know how it's going to be uh, how it's going to be uh, received." It's it's a night scene, it's 3am, it's dark, it's, it's got a rave party, it's, it's, it's not the, you know, two in the afternoon springtime kind of shot of the average railroad. What's, what's going on? And, you know, and it's, it's got a fairly, I'm not going to say a deep theme, but it's got a fairly solid theme, it's got a fairly sen- a solid sense of identity, mm-hmm. it's located in a very definite space. Mm-hmm. That space is not in Australia, is mm-hmm. an Australian audience going to get it? And John had to say to me, no, no, no. You know it. You've done your research. You know that it's right. You know that it sets up. The the Aussie audience is not going to know. You're going to be very shocked or surprised if you find anyone who who's actually been there, which means that, not to say that you're lying, but you could tell them it's anywhere in New York and they would believe you and they will appreciate it for what it is. What John doesn't know is, lo and behold, we went to the Epping show and we had three people over <laughs> the course of a three-day show mm. We had, it's in Omaha, Nebraska, but you're in New York City where there is a transient population of Australians that go over and pay Hajj to New York periodically. Well, they not many of them go visit Brooklyn. Well, was, yes, well, yeah. what, well, what we had was... Uh, I had a couple of days in New York and I didn't make it over that side <laughs> of the Hudson. We had, uh, we had one, um, one um, father there who um, had his daughter up on the chair looking at the layout. Mm-hmm. And he said to his daughter, doesn't that look like, you know, um, Arnie Christie's place? And she went, yeah. And she went off to look at some other layouts. And he turned to one of my other operators and explained that he'd been there only a couple of weeks earlier because his sister lived near <laughs> the location of Brooklyn. <laughs> and he, I mean, first-hand experience, he said, we nailed it. Uh, another... Again, you're not really answering the question. You've told the story previously, so I, I, don't, I don't want to cover the same material again. But ancient history, my father had an expression for it. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> this is what I was trying to get across to Prof with that conversation that night. He'd done his homework. He'd done it, taken his best shot at it. <laughs> the chances of someone being there who could actively point out, I'm sorry, that building should be 300 yards to the left. Which is the compression that you used <laughs> in some circumstances, yeah. Um, 
But I'm, I, I guess returning to my original question, once again, third time lucky. <laughs> I think this is a layout that would tour very well in the US, and I think there's a resonatory audience. There's a fellow who did, I want to say it's, it's it maybe a Canadian scene, but used the same water effects that okay. was at Grand Rails. Right. And I had a conversation with him associated with your work with Brooklyn 3AM to see at least if he knew of it. Yeah. He didn't in that case. It was a similar-sized layout. It was considerably more hyper detailed and, and it didn't have a, it wasn't a focused yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. But it was something that captivated people and it had less of the movement interest and less of the audio visual interest that Brooklyn has. It was just a wet lap, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think also it raises interesting questions associated with micro layouts mm. and it isn't the traditional micro layout as you'd see, you know, the other stuff that you built, for example. Because of these interesting additional elements, I'd, I'd be interesting to say what is a traditional micro layout. I well, mean, it's typically it, it doesn't. It's not. It's not in that form. I mean, it's more like in terms of just you have access to the track from all from most sides. Yeah, yeah you have a yeah. sense of it because while less is more in these circumstances, being able to view it from a variety of angles also gives it greater space in some regard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's okay. designed to be yeah. viewed from multiple angles. Yeah. Whereas Brooklyn is really I'm going to control your viewing force angles. You don't, you don't exactly. have a choice. Exactly. <laughs> but again, returning to my original question, <laughs> it's not a case of being tunnel vision. It's a case of being funnel vision. Yeah. Your, your viewing angle is set so that you can see this part of the layout. Mm. You can see that part of the layout. If you move six inches to the other side, you'll see a slightly different view, mm. but again, it's a controlled view. Mm. So you won't see a, a, a gap in the back side. Certainly. Um, Certainly. Be- because the viewing angles are being worked out. And perhaps one of the best guys I've, I've, I've seen at this was Jeff Knott. Mm. Certainly. With basically Smuggler's Cave. You move six inches sideways, you wound up with a totally different look. All of a sudden, an alleyway would open up, or a, a tree would move and would open <laughs> a view. You'd see a building that wasn't there because previously it was hidden by the tree. Certainly. Or you move around the headland, and all of a sudden, the whole aspect of the layout behind the or the, the bay behind <laughs> the headland changes. Um, you know, Smuggler's Cave was brilliant at that, and there was a couple of other layouts that I think Jeff cut his teeth on that were equally as good. Yeah, um, but, but desperately returning to my original question. <laughs> so, well, fuck. Okay. Get to so, the question. So, the concern here is, with an American audience, there may be more people that know Brooklyn. Yeah. But aside from that, after it's toured and done a few more shows here... Yeah. Are you willing to let your baby go? I mean, this seems to be the kind of emotional thing here. When I even raise it with you, you kind of stammer up and don't really answer the question. Now it's been recorded effectively. Can you see this layout touring independently of you? Could you see this layout going to the US and and touring the US? I mean, is this a layout that you see doing that? Or will it always have to be something that is shown in Australia? That Americans um, need to come and pay hajj to if they want to see it. Well, look, I, I think, I think there's, um, plenty of Aussie, uh, sorry, pl- plenty of US modelers who would, um, 
uh, enjoy a holiday down here anyway. There's plenty of stuff to see. So you've so answered my question. That's 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 a, that's a ready to go thing. Um, uh, could could Brooklyn tour the US if we could get past the logistics? Yeah, I think it probably could. I mean, it's built as a touring and mobile layout. It's uh, just about everything about it is designed to be thrown in the back of a Subaru wagon mm-hmm. and go. I'm not so sure if it would uh, travel so well in the back of an F250 Ford uh, pickup. Um, but you know, give me a give me a wagon or a van or something, not a problem. As a complete show, I mean, coming from a background of doing live concerts and events and things, stagecraft and shows and presentations, mm. fine. Give me a mains PowerPoint and I'll give you three and days worth of exhibition. That's, that's interesting here because the power is a bit of a catch with this. It isn't all completely, you know, ten ten. There is some. 240. There, there is there is some there is some fixed 240, but nothing that couldn't be engineered around. Yeah. So I mean, as a touring layout, um, could it be toured? Yes. Could it be toured without me personally? Yeah, probably. Um, it would need. Uh, I have a I have a layout reference book that mm-hmm. I carry with me everywhere. Um, everywhere the layout goes, so that if someone kind of looks at it and expresses more of an interest than just a passing, oh, that's a nice city scene. Um, we can talk at a kind of shallow dive, but a bit more information. If someone reads through all of that and says, I really want to know why 41st and 2nd is the way it is, then I can pull out the reference material mm-hmm. and go, right, you want a deep dive? Here mm-hmm. it is. Um, but in terms Two and of... and a half hours later. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not joking, unfortunately. That's um, just a regular conversation with a prof. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> um, the, uh, in terms of op- uh, the, the electromechanical operation of it, though, um, I don't actually have a manual for that at this point mm-hmm. because at the moment it's all in my head. Mm-hmm. So to give it to someone just cold and say, here, run this, I mean, the throttle is a speed, direction, and there's a automatic shuttle or manual drive toggle at the top of it. So at a base level, driving the trains, fine. Mm-hmm. The turnouts are all manual caboose hobbies ground throw. Mm-hmm. If you know how to use a caboose hobbies yep. ground throw, you're there. Yeah. There's no block toggles, there's no there's no electrical switches, there's nothing funky for traction power. It's literally, if the turnout that your loco is up against is set for the main line, then your loco will move. Yeah, certainly. You know, it's not difficult from a train mm-hmm. operation perspective. The number of circuits that are in the layout is something like 22. Certainly. With all of the lighting effects and, and audio circuits and, and smoke yes, machines. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm considering the audio as a separate animal. Okay. Um, but yes, there's something like 22 lighting circuits, lighting and, and um, the Ray Party smoke machine, <laughs> the steaming manhole, the New York um, mm-hmm. New York steaming manhole type effect. Um, so knowing where those switches are, which switches are what, you know, when they're appropriate, how to handle them. Mm-hmm. There are, for example, a couple of um, strategic uh, smoke oil um, points to apply uh, soothed smoke oil for mm-hmm. smoke generators. Mm-hmm. I know where they are, do you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you showed me. So, 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 these, so these, yes. these kind of things, if yeah. someone was to take away our isn't, isn't that just sure. like a couple of hours? I mean, isn't that just a couple exactly. of hours poking around? It's, and kind of... it's not difficult, but you need to know... Certainly. You need to you know, know where they are. Actually, and, yeah. and more importantly, I guess, from my own paranoia point of view, you need to know what to do about it when it doesn't do what you think it should. Yeah. Um, smoke machines have a really bad rap mm-hmm. from a lot of people because they either run them too long and burn them out, or they run them on too high voltage and, and burn, burn them out. out. Yes. Or they let the thing, um, they let the smoke oil congeal in the system and clog them mm-hmm. and then try to overpower them to clear the clog. Or stick something down the tube to clear the clog. 
and burn them out. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's running gags there. Now, the smoke machines on Brooklyn have been optimised both for that kind of reliability and also for performance, uh, for the actual physical appearance. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, it's still it's stuff you need to know. There would need to be some base training. Mm-hmm. Once that base training's done, sure, it could go for a show. I, I'm not too concerned about that. Mm-hmm. Would someone have the passion to uh, to understand the theme of the story and optimise the presentation of it? That becomes another question. Mm-hmm. Some exhibitors have that. Some exhibitors maybe not so much. It would be on a case-by-case basis. Mechanically, sure, it could tour. With the right person... It could tour without me. Mm-hmm. I'm reasonably confident of that. Mm-hmm. And it would tour well. Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly my point. That, that's the case. It would tour brilliantly. Yeah. I, I would hope. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, as an external observer, I think. John and For what it's worth, in a, in a kind of weirdly, weirdly, only tenuously connected kind of thing, um, I know that John and I have worked together in terms of building layouts specifically for the purposes of touring. They've had a specific theme and a story, and they've been designed from the outset yeah. as live promo. It goes from in the back of a station wagon to on the floor in 20 minutes to operational, and then at the end of the show, it goes 15 minutes from fully operational to in the back of the wagon mm-hmm. and gone again. And it's at the same kind of level of presentation. It's got complete layout level skirting. It's got mm-hmm. integrated lighting. It's got plug a power supply and a throttle in mm-hmm. and put the trains on the track and it's and running kind of level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, this is a part of designing a layout. But the point being is, yes, designing a layout that's designed for touring is entirely doable. And if you can optimise that, I keep going for the optimising presentation and design. Mm-hmm. But again, if you do that, then there's no reason why it should have to fear doing any real yeah. kind of show. Yeah. Yeah. So for folks listening in who don't have the benefit of the visuals, it's currently at dusk, and the Brooklyn 3am sign is actually illuminating the professor as the light has dropped out, which is an interesting visual. John Garrity, you're here as well, funnily enough. In terms of Coromel, you bought a few artefacts to, to show me associated with that. What's the current status of Coromel? Uh, stage one um, needs vegetation mm-hmm. still. Um, bottom end, uh, the roof's got to go on to the top of the screens building. Uh, the walls have got to go up. They're up temporarily for the narrow gauge convention. Um, on the tipple house, and uh, that completes the structures at the bottom end. Uh, there's detailing to be done. We've found a little outhouse, so it's got to be plonked at the end of the um, tipple deck where it starts on the uphill grade, and the old standard Aussie one-holer. Mm-hmm. Um, incline module is done. Uh, Top-end module is awaiting trees, but it's got a base layer of vegetation on it. Another two layers of vegetation can just about see it out. Again, we're not after a heavy layer of, of vegetation. Mm-hmm. What we want is a, a sparse layer where people are looking through the vegetation to see stuff move. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a fine act getting that. It, it can be overdone too easily. Certainly. Um, dead end module has got 
base layer of, of ground treat on it. Uh, there is two stone causeways to go in um, and then it's ready for vegetation. Um, we ballasted that very, very late in the, the day prior to the narrow gauge convention. So it really needs a good go over with flangeways to, to, to check that. There's, there's lumps of coal where there shouldn't ought to be. But just making uh, some of the smaller locomotives have problems. Um, top end module needs a bit of work doing on it. Um, and it's ready for trees. Mm. Buildings are all done. Uh, there's really only three buildings or three structures on it, which is the water tank, which is the iconic scene for Coromel, um, an ash pit, which we found out was next to the water tank, and a sand house, and that's it. Uh, the rest of it is, is we low-level scattered trees, and again, the trick is getting people to look up through the trees mm. and see the skips parked yes. wherever they are. Uh, on that top end module, there's some non-operational track, which will be used as a, a scenic sink for our uh, less than successful attempts at, at resin casting coal skips. Mm. Um, there's going to be a few non-runners up there where we've hit problems, uh, and they're literally going to be glued in position with super glue, and that'll fix that. <laughs> um, train turntable is working, but Realistically, that will probably be the last time the train turntable will be out for a while because we should be on to stage two and three. Mm. We've got the baseboards cut um, for stage two, which is literally a broker's nose. There's basically three modules go together, uh, which kind of stick out into a, uh, a peninsula and the track winds itself around the mountain. Mm. Again, um, we're going to be looking at putting some depth in there. And again, the effect we're trying to get is a railway meandering around the edge of a mountainside on a ledge that's been carved into the side of the hill. Yeah. Yes, there's going to be a couple of creeks, a couple of waterfalls. So the, the, the scenery side of that will actually uh, make that part of it. And then we're on to the mine itself, which is another three modules. Mm. Um, and is that phase three? That's phase three. Um, basically, what was the train turntable turns into a balloon loop loading area behind yeah. the back scene. And there's two modules of mine buildings, and we've got a very good handle on what mine buildings were actually there. There's going to be some elevated gangways with skips feeding the powerhouse. Um, somehow or other we've got to work out of a way of building perhaps a 10 or 12 inch high smokestack for the powerhouse. <laughs> it did tend to dominate things. Not so difficult. Um, it was a steel one and it was wire braced and yes we've got the plans in 1927. Um, so we can model what was there reasonably accurately as far as getting building footprints. What the buildings were mm. um, is going to be a bit more problematical. How, how important is that, though? Um, it's part of the story of the mine. Okay. Um, again, that particular mine 
was reasonably well funded, so mm-hmm. the buildings were pretty well done. Yes. Um, a lot of the... that it, it, it wasn't a down-on-your-luck mine by mm. any stretch of mm. the imagination. So everything was done relatively well. There was a, a double-track engine house, and there was also another single-track one further around that we've just found. Mm. So that's been factored in so that there will be a single-track engine mm-hmm. house. And mm-hmm. It was carved into a ledge beside a creek. So, gosh, OK, gosh. now we've got to build a creek. <laughs> <laughs> build a, the, a bridge that we've got photos of mm. uh, over this creek. And, yes, it'll be a scenic cameo. And, yes, we can kind of say, well, here it was. Yes. Um, in the 1920s, the vegetation would have been a lot more sparse than is up there now. Um, in 1968, Wollongong had a major bushfire go through and we lost 50 houses in a night. Mm. Um, that stretch of mountain up behind Coromel didn't get burnt. So realistically now in 2015, and I've been down there since 1961, that stretch of mountain hasn't gone up and when it goes up, it's going to go up like a bomb. Um, but as far as Coromel goes, the 1920s photos that we've got show trees around that were smaller, that were a lot more sparse. Mm. So um, it won't be the 200-foot tall gums. Mm. <laughs> It'll be the 40 or 50-footers. Yeah. Um, because that was what was there. The big stuff had gone. Um, it had either been hacked down for... Building houses or turned into firewood or or whatever. Uh, So you had a lot of secondary growth left on the side of the hill. Um, We should be able to get that reasonably accurately uh, or reasonably presentable. And again, I I suppose the old expression in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. We know a little bit more about it than most people. (laughs) Yeah. so we've got a better chance of pulling it off um, and doing a, a really good job on it. So it's in a bit of a holding pattern at present until uh, probably the end of this year before much will happen with it. Mm. Um, from the end of this year, yes, I reckon there's going to be a, another concerted kind of work bash at it for another couple of months and, mm-hmm. and you'll see stages... One will go to completion very, very quickly because we know what we've got to do and we're almost there. <laughs> uh, stage two, the landscape will go in pretty quick. <laughs> um, we're still arguing it out amongst ourselves regards what we do for vaccines. Mm. So they've got to be engineered in. Because mm. there's um, some discussion against that, right, wasn't there? Or? There is because at, at present at 1350 high, um, with where the track level is, mm-hmm. if you've got to reach over to throw a set of points, the last thing you want in the way is a vaccine. Because mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you add 150 metres or millimetres to that, mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden you're up at shoulder height mm-hmm. very, very quickly, mm-hmm. uh, or beyond. And so there's some engineering there that needs to be thought through. It's not a showstopper. Yes, it's been designed in. Mm-hmm. Um, but better to design it in rather than have to retrofit it later. Yeah. 
uh, we're at the stage now where we make those decisions and work out does it go in or not? If it doesn't go in, what do we do? Yeah. How do we camouflage the end of the layout? Because with a vaccine, it's very, very easy to put a photo vaccine up with basically treetops. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, you've got your key trees and it, it just kind of blurs out in the background of, of, yeah. of trees of various shapes and sizes. As far as the mine goes, there could be some interesting problems there getting the angle of the buildings right so they fit on the modules. Certainly. Uh, that's still to be engineered. Yes, we know what we've got to get, how we fit it on. Um, might take a little bit of creative engineering. Um, it will be reasonably spectacular because of the height difference within the mine. Certainly. Yeah. Um, the mine was actually hacked into the side of the hill on, on two different levels. So... You've got the level of the tracks, and at that level there was a row of buildings in front of them. So, realistically, you'll see a train of the full skips come out of the mine and disappear behind a building. Yes. Uh, the next thing you'll see is them take off out of the other side of the building with a steam loco on them instead of a battery electric. Mm. Um, next thing you'll see out of the end where that battery electric emerged with the full one will be the battery electric with a rake of empties. Empties, yes. Heading around a, a reasonably sharp bend, then disappearing underground. Yes. We know what the mine entrances look like, so they will be there. Um, we've mentioned shuttles. There is provision there. Coromel had three entrances. So, yes, we've got two entrances tied up handling fulls and empties. Um... That still leaves a third entrance, so we could have a supply train shuttling down, or else it becomes the man transport. Certainly. Uh, another battery electric loco, the man riding cars in the 1920s were basically coal skips, <laughs> and not much more. Mm. Um, they were basically the, the coal skip frame with a, a, a bench seat on it, Yes. and that was it. Yes. If you fell off, well, gee, that was unlucky. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, again, it's going to be relatively easy to make that, and there's not much difference between a, a group of coal miners heading underground in dirty gear and those emerging at the surface <laughs> after digging coal for eight to ten hours. Yes. So, yes, that'll, that'll be a, a nice little cameo we can add for that third entrance. Um, scenic-wise, that about covers it. Um, mentally, we know what we've got to do. Now all we've got to do is actually do it. Mm. Um, the eternal challenge for building a layout. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> realistically, this has been on the go. We cut our first aluminium frame in 2010. Mm. So there's been five years' worth of, of getting it to where it is. <laughs> Um, and it's still not really show ready yet, but it's not far off. Mm. Um, we've got to organise the transportation a bit better than we have. Um, that's coming. Um, and that has to be organised before we go out in, in seriousness. And again, we've probably got, uh, I'll give us better than five years on the circuit <laughs> with this. <laughs> Um, 
because I think it's that unusual. Certainly. Um, because it's that unusual, we're also designing it for other exhibitions, not just model railway exhibitions. Certainly, yes. So there are local mining festivals mm. that occur each year mm. um, where this layout would, would certainly uh, kind of turn up and be a draw card. Um, whether we get paid for turning up or not, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's another question. Um, but we do it. The, the main reason behind Coromel was for the fun of it. Um, yes, it's designed for exhibition work. Um, we're never ever going to get, we're smart enough to realise we're never ever going to get rich doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm at a, a stage work-wise where basically I'm almost semi-retired, so yes, mm. I can afford to kind of load everything in the, the back end of the trailer and disappear up the road for however many kilometres. Uh, let's face it, the nearest exhibition is 100 kilometres away almost. Mm. Um, your next nearest one's probably 150. So there's some serious distances that this layout's going to have to be transported over. Mm. Uh, be unwrapped out of the trailer, hit the floor, and be expected to go first time every time. So, the, with with Brooklyn, uh, it's going to it's designed to do that type of distance prior to getting to the exhibition. Yeah, this is perhaps one thing that's different between Australia and the UK is the distances that we've got to do with our exhibition lines. Certainly, yeah. Um, each of the main states has, has got a capital city main exhibition. So you've got a big one in Adelaide, you've got a big one in Perth, you've got a big one in Melbourne, you've got a big one elsewhere in Sydney, uh, Brisbane. Brisbane's just been, it was last weekend. Hello. Yeah. Howdy. Howdy. We're recording, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It can all be post-produced. Keep going. Yeah, there's six or seven hundred miles between Sydney and Melbourne and and, yes. and Sydney and Brisbane. So you equate that to kilometres, it's a thousand kilometres each way. Your layout's got to do that in the back end of a trailer, mm. then be ready to go. Mm. And you nearly lost it, like, the last... Trip to Melbourne, right? That was uh, well, we almost lost it on, on the way to Kajula, and Kajula was only 80 k's up the road. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So this is a reoccurring problem? Um, no, it's got to be... In, it, it, it requires an engineered solution. Certainly. Mm. To a, part, yes. of, part of being on the exhibition circuit with a layer is you need things engineered right. Certainly. So it's not just the presentation. The presentation is what the public sees. What yeah. the public don't see is the amount of engineering that, that has to go in behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh, things like transport has got to be factored in. Yeah. Things like what holds it up has got to be factored in. How do you transport what holds it up? <laughs> yeah. You can't just rattle around in the bottom of a trailer. A yeah. thousand k's, it'll throw itself to bits. Yeah. If, so, it, if the support structure it takes up more cubic space than what the layout does, you better know that, because <laughs> you may not have trestle tables at the show, mm-hmm. and some modules are not designed to sit on flat-bottom trestle tables anyway. So, you know, yeah. all logistics. Yeah. yeah. So, at, at, at present where Coromel's at, yes, we've got 
trestles cut ready for fabrication, <laughs> but at present stage one is being presented off uh, blow mould tables. <laughs> it's about the right height. <laughs> uh, whether it finishes up that height or whether we go up and down on the trestles remains to be seen. Mm. Um, and part of that will be getting it together for probably two or three weekends of the go <laughs> and operating the living daylights out of it until we're happy with it. We're close, and we went close. Uh, the Narragate Convention, we tipped better than 100 car loads a day. Um, I think we had about three breakaways all weekend. Hmm. Which isn't a bad effort. No, not at all. Um, still not bulletproof. There's stuff happening and we know where the, where the problems are. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're now getting a better read on it. So, is it the skip? Is it the grade? Is it something in the grade? <laughs> you know, they're all questions that you've got to kind of work your way around. So, if you've got a problem with one skip and it runs away, well, you Send it through the cycle again and see whether it runs away again. Yes. If it runs away again and nothing else is running away, Houston, you've got a problem with that skip. Yes. 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 And if it's too big a problem, yes, it's going to turn into scenery. Yes. Of course, it'll get glued to the rails up on the top of the hill with a load of coal in it. Yep. And so, you know, there's a considerable amount of test running that's still got to happen. Mm. But it's it's on the radar. Yes, Certainly. it'll be worked through. Yeah. Um, but that's where we're at with Coral. Certainly. Certainly. Um, and Coral's only one of my other railway interests. I've got a major one with the two-foot gauge museum. Certainly. Uh, being semi-retired now, I'm down there probably two to three days a week. Yeah. Um there's stuff there that needs to happen, and yes, we're getting a handle on it, and yes, it will happen. Mm. And I'm the bunny who's got to make it happen. Yes, <laughs> yes. I can feel my ears growing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the, there's all these competing interests got to be factored in, and, and yes, we'll get there, and yes, it'll be spectacular when it, mm-hmm. stage three... When, when stage three is out and running and you've got the full run to the mine, um, it's going to be quite a layout. Certainly. Um, that's not that far away. We're, the reason it's taken us five years to get to where we are, because what we've done so far is all the hard part. Realistically, what we've got now is one track winding around some scenery <laughs> for three modules, <laughs> a laddyard to build, a balloon loop to build, and more scenery. Yes. It's not that difficult. At least it doesn't run away on a grade. All that track is flat. Certainly, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, speaking away, speaking of running away on a grade, we have a, a hectic schedule because my wife has insisted that she needs to meet the professor this evening. So we have a meal planned, mm-hmm. a location planned, but I think we're going to have to take this thing on the road relatively shortly. Been a pleasure to have both of you on this live thing. Hats off in particular, Professor. Although I know John Garrity uh, came a long way in order to be here. Mm. Wonderful day. Looking forward to concluding it with some fish and chips. <laughs> Sounds and good. Taking it off from there. Thank you both for uh, the opportunity to record. And Tom, thank you for coming down to Australia and having a time. My brother kind of wanted me here, so you know when your brother calls, you have to attend. 
Yeah, but if we can play trains too, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, one day out of the trip. Always good. Always good. And next time you're here, there's another teapot gauge museum for you to see. Very good. Yes. Anyway, thank you both. Thanks to the listeners. All right. Thanks, Tom.